Did I ever tell you about the duck we had on our front lawn? You might have told me that. Did I tell you about the time that I was attacked by some ducks while I was camping? Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you yet again. We are roughly, I don't know, a quarter of the way through the legislative session this year. And uh, we just passed the deadline for the committee deadline in the Chamber of Origin. And uh, we're going to talk about what happened this week with that a little bit. And also, you know, the other news of regarding Oklahoma politics and government. I'm joined this week by my co-host, Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? Scott and I are coming to you from his dining room table, which is a rare occasion for us to be together in person, and I know I'm looking forward to this, so thanks for having me over, buddy. Hey, man, glad you're glad you're here. It's nice not to do this uh, over Zoom, or we don't, we don't actually use Zoom, but Zoom is now the euphemism for any virtual communication, yeah. right? Zoom is, the, Zoom is the Kleenex of the modern world. Indeed, indeed. Xerox has been replaced. No, it's great to be, it's great. Remember we used to, we used to do this every week? I do. Person. Right, we did yeah. That seems like a seems like a lifetime ago. Scott, this is episode uh, one hundred and ninety eight that we're doing right now. That oh. means in just a couple of weeks we'll hit episode two hundred. Oh shit! We should plan for that. We should do something. <laughs> we should. Do I something. I'm hoping right that uh, <laughs> we haven't talked about COVID in several weeks because things have been looking better cautiously right and. Maybe uh, we can find another patio or something and do another live event. Man, that'd be awesome. You know, it uh, things things have been better from COVID. It's been, uh, you know, I'll just tell you anecdotally, it's been a couple of weeks since I've had anybody uh, pop positive uh, in in clinic. I've had some folks, um, uh, you know, patients of mine that have have been seen other places and tested positive, but um, we're you know seeing some flu, some other respiratory viruses, but haven't seen as much COVID cases now. I think our seven day average is down to like seven hundred and fifty or something. Um, which is still, it's it's kind of funny because it's like, oh, things are so much better. Cases are 750. Like, that's still about twice as high as we'd like to see them, <laughs> right? Um, it's, you know, I think we could feel reasonably good about a case count less than 400 a day because that would put us something, in a, that would put us on the order of something like 10, 10 cases per 100,000, um, um, which is kind of a, I think, a more sustainable level um but 750 is better than fourteen thousand. so that's the truth <laughs> that is the truth yeah what a wild ride uh and so we're keeping a close eye on the ba2 subvariant of omicron that's looking like it might not be a huge spike yeah i you know you see conflicting things with ba2 depending on where you look you know the danes had a pretty significant spike with it you know i love denmark um, you do love denmark happiest people in the world um <laughs> Um, I, yeah, that's all I'll say. Happiest people in the world on multiple surveys. Um, South Africa, um, also had, uh, uh, they had BA2, but it did not lead to a surge in hospitalizations, um, or deaths. So hopefully that's what happens here. Uh, I think depending, depending, I think, I think the severity of BA2 may well depend on what your situation has been like prior right. to BA2. Right. I mean, vaccination uh, rates very different between Denmark and South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we'll see. Yeah. 
Well, um, so this week, uh, it was obviously the deadline week on Thursday because of bad weather last week. Everything got uh, kind of pushed back and delayed, which, as we said last week, uh, our hearts go out to uh, Senator McCourtney for trying to avoid having late nights. And I guess they didn't have late nights. I didn't see anything about it. And I'll tell you, uh, the senator literally two minutes ago just put out a tweet it's a picture of um, it's a picture of him, a picture presumably of himself sitting at a very long, uh, empty Vladimir Putin style table, um, but uh, he's he's got uh, got a, a few giant stacks of bills in front of him and says we've got this is what we've got left after committee work. We got to sort through, find the good stuff, and get it over to the House. Uh, what do they have? Two weeks to pass things off the floor? Yeah, I think the I think the floor deadline is the twenty. 20- fourth if yeah. i remember yeah so that's, that sounds right yeah so that's about that's two, three weeks two, yeah. three weeks yeah um so so they'll have a they'll have a, a busy a busy time um some notable bills that uh, made it through we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about today um but all in all it seems like it seems like the level of chaos at the capitol this year is not as high as we've seen in years past yeah it has been uh, the usual smattering of high-profile abortion bills, a bunch of other like headline-grabbing bills mm-hmm. that are widely expected to not go anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what's something's interesting this year that we've heard uh, is that not only you know it's not not uncommon for a lot of these bills to pass out of committee initially. But then to either not pass the floor of their Mm -hmm. chamber or when they send it to the opposite chamber, there's not just an unspoken understanding, but an explicit agreement of like, hey, listen, I'm, you know, a committee, let's say education committee chair in the Senate tells education committee chair in the House, I'm going to send you some real garbage. Don't hear it. Yeah. And you can send me garbage and I will not hear it. Right. Like in that way. It, this is this is like the stinkly inside baseball of politics, right? It's how they can accommodate their colleagues in their own chamber, right? And then rely on the other chamber, which is perhaps a benefit of a bicameral system. It's not it's not me. It's it's those guys, right? Right. Yeah. So those, those bastards in the house that won't that <laughs> right. uh, that won't hear your bill. I did everything I could, right? You know, yeah. Uh, we 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 tried to make it fly, and uh, you know, talk to. Talk to those guys. No, yeah. con- no control over those. Well, people. I mean, a good example, right, is is Pro Tem treats. Mm-hmm. Um, he says it's not a voucher bill, but we all it's a voucher. It's bill. a voucher bill. Um, if it walks like a duck and talk, quacks like a duck, right? Uh, yeah, smells like a duck. Uh, anyway, that ducks bill, do not smell good, by the way. No, most I think most fowl smell foul. I I'd, I'd agree. I'd agree. I'm not a big bird person. Anyway. Did I ever tell you about the duck we had on our front lawn here at this house? Yeah, I don't think so. It was really weird, man. It was like December, I think. Uh, we were sitting here one night uh, watching TV, and uh, I heard a quacking, and I was like, that sounds like a duck. And there was a duck on my front lawn, yeah. and like I went out there to be like, what's it happen- Like, what's it doing? And then it ran towards me, like quacking, yeah. so I came back inside because I didn't, didn't want to fight a duck. Yeah, I wasn't in the mood to fight a duck, and it like... Hung out on our lawn, quacking all night. It's really how did, weird. How did your dog respond to the duck? So I actually took her out on a leash uh, to see uh, what she would uh, what she would make of it, and uh, she usually likes to chase after things. She did not seem super interested in chasing after the duck. Maybe it was a rabid. 
I don't know. It was kind of weird, man. It was kind of weird. I, I think you might have told me that. Did I tell you about the time that I was attacked by some ducks while I was camping in the middle of the night? No. Well, uh, I was camp. This was down in Texas and at uh, Lake Somerville in kind of central South Texas. And I was uh, camping with my uh, wife at the time. And she had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And we were kind of far from the bathroom. So we got up and we drove down there. For one, we didn't check the weather. We didn't know that a huge cold front was coming through. Sure. So the temperature dropped from the 70s into the 30s sure. overnight. I was not prepared for that. Anyway, we go to the little, you know, uh, latrine building. And I'm standing outside. And it's roughly 4.30 in the morning. It's pitch black. She goes in the bathroom. And there's about six or eight ducks out there. And they're the big fat ones that are like white, kind of gray. Yeah. They have like a speckled orange sure. bill. Sure. Uh, and pretty tall. Probably, I don't know, 24 to 30 inches tall. Like, these ducks or geese? Ah, uh, that's a good question. They weren't like... They, they sound from the height. For, for listeners, Andy just denoted a height of about 30 inches off yeah. the floor. So yeah, about a table height. I think, these, I think these were geese, not ducks. Okay, maybe that's it. But they're not... Not Canada geese, right? Yeah. Not the black and white that most people yeah. think of. Yeah, these were like a big fat white goose. Yeah, burly. Yeah, well, they were burly. <laughs> they looked muscular, right? And uh, so they kept, they were quacking quite aggressively and coming towards me. And I was like, open the door. I was like, hey, can you hurry up? Because there's some angry ducks out here. <laughs> and so she comes out kind of laughing, like, what are you talking about? And then they came up and I was like, look at these. They're just going nuts, and they're so loud in the middle of the night. Yeah. And then they got about four feet away and started snapping at me. Yeah. And I was like, go get in the car. So she ran around, and I had them chase me, and they kept waddling after me. And I got in the car, and I was like, wow, can you believe this? And then we started hearing... <laughs> and they were pecking the bumper of my car. And so I you know, backed up and zipped down. But... I was like, we're only probably, I don't know, 300 yards away from Did these Did they follow ducks. you? No, thankfully, but I was worried. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do if they come after us in the tent? <laughs> so wild. You know, uh, the thing is, I would say that that story sounds a little crazy, except when I was three, uh, we would go, uh, when I was a kid, we'd, we'd go out to Lake Eufaula in the summers. And when I was three, I sustained a bite on my right buttock. Uh, <laughs> Directly in the buttock? From a goose. Uh, that looks very much like the ones that you described. Yeah. A large, burly goose that thought my uh, pudgy little toddler uh, behind was appetizing. Hmm. Well, my, do you have a scar? Uh, you, have a, you know, I, I've, I've not used a mirror to check, but, but now I'm curious. A duck scar on your ass? <laughs> <Yeah>. that's, <laughs> that's, that's good. Well, anyway, uh, I don't know how we got on this story, but on, on ducks, but walks like a duck, talks like a duck, yeah, quacks yeah. like a duck, crazy deuce, crazy, crazy duck in my yard. You're rabid geese, right? Uh, which honestly, crazy, crazy geese biting you on the ass is. I mean, I don't know. You could use that as a euphemism for SB sixteen forty seven. I think you could. Yeah. So, <laughs> speaking of bills, let's get. <laughs> that's how it goes. Ducks to bills, back to yeah, voucher bills. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that. That all that to say, treats voucher bill is uh, widely expected to face some opposition in the house once they get over there, right? I mean, like, McCall is still saying he's not going to hear it, right? Um, now there have been sig- significant changes to the bill. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it's passed out of uh, both both committees. Um, the one of the big changes there's an income cap now of three hundred percent of the federal poverty line. Um, uh, so for a family of four, that's one hundred fifty four thousand dollars in annual household income. Hmm. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, homeschool families uh, also no longer qualify, and this is interesting because several people 
Um, so it sounds like several homeschool families, maybe some homeschool co-ops that they actually did not want to be included uh, in this. Um, there was the Department of Ed did a, a fiscal analysis, mm. uh, not a physical analysis. That's, right. some, that's something your doctor does. Uh, they did a fiscal analysis that uh, that estimates the program would cost between 118 million and 161 million. Which, um, to me, that's a little like, oh, it will, it will cost this much or 50 percent more than this, mm. <laughs> like somewhere between this number and 50 percent more than this. Um, so, I mean, that's not that's not an insignificant expenditure. Um, you know, even if it's right in the middle, of, right in the middle of that, that's 100, 140 million dollars um, would 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 kind of be the, the, the middle ground there. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen with this. You know, I think the big, the, the big thing is what can be done to make this palatable for rural districts. Um, and to me, I don't know that either one of these things does it. Mm -hmm. Right? No. Like, yeah. Um, so, so I think that's the big, that's the big fear is that this guts funding from from rural schools. Right. Um, now, if not that many kids participate in this, does that still happen? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And then the other question is, is this actually going to be enough money to the average family? I think the average the the average family, this is going to come out to like 3600 bucks. Yeah. Which is certainly like, that's a, that's a lot of money. Like $3,600 is a, 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 a lot of money. I don't know that it's going to be enough for tuition at really certainly most or even any private school no so right. that begs the question like even if this passes is it actually going to do anything so i think an interesting thing about the house is that it's a more it's a more rural caucus overall it's also a more suburban caucus right and i think the schools rural schools could lose money on this if they if people switched from public schools to maybe I, undoubtedly there'll be pop up, you know, new private schools that are trying to capitalize on this. So that would that would be hurtful to rural communities. It's hurtful to rural communities overall, right? Because it's it disaggregates some of the money that public schools get. Mm -hmm. But then particularly in like suburban areas, right, where you could have people that would choose one school over another, mm -hmm. even within the district. Mm -hmm. um, um, I thought about that today, uh, like I went for a run, and the, the elementary school that's in my neighborhood pulls from a pretty small area, but there might be people in like neighboring neighborhoods who want their kids to go there. Mm -hmm. And then, and that would mean that their money would leave from the schools where their kids are at right now and go to my, to the school in our neighborhood. And just that dynamic, you start having this like competitive nature between public schools that just shouldn't exist, right? Like the problem is not too much money in public schools. The, the problem is that there's not enough money already. Right. So why are we? Well, and it's this, it's this fallacy that like somehow like competition between public schools, it's like trying to apply market, right. market dynamics, market dynamics and market incentives to public education, which like one is not like, like that's not the point of markets, right? <laughs> like, right. The, right. Well, well, yeah. Well, and education like, isn't, Education is not a commodity, right? Like right. that's right. <laughs> you know, so um, it's just I think it's a bad idea all the way around. I think it's a reasonable question to ask whether Senator Treat actually is intending for this bill to become law, or whether this is one of those things kind of like, kind of like what you said that like he introduced it, he's fighting for it, the governor wants it, he and the governor can both run 
uh, you know, he, he and the governor can both run for their, you know, they can, they can pursue their ambitions for higher office running on the fact that they tried to do it, uh, and, and blame it on McCall for saying that it didn't get done. Right. And McCall, again, maybe, maybe Speaker McCall does have ambitions to be governor or senator or something one day. He hasn't shown any of those ambitions so far. Um, so maybe McCall doesn't care if he's blamed, he's the fall guy for, for killing it because right. it's, you know, it's not important to him electorally right it's certainly not popular in his district right um he right. doesn't he doesn't need to run on to be reelected speaker uh, or to win his district right that's probably a good segue to talk about the the entirety of what we talked about in last week's episode right is the domino effect of senator inhoff's retirement <clears throat> and so uh here's what we know over the last week right we know that um congressman mark wayne mullen has announced that and put out a little video um that he is going to run for Inhofe seat, which means that uh, Congressional District 2, CD2, that he's, he's in now. He can't run for re-election and run for mm-hmm. election of the Senate, so he has to drop out of that race, and I think has already done so. Uh, and so that means that there's a con- another congressional seat that is wide open. Um, and so, you know, our journalists are doing a good job of asking around. Carmen Foreman this week on the News OK Political State podcast said she asked Speaker McCall about it, and he said <clears throat> basically no, like he's pretty content to just run for re-election as Speaker. Mm. Again, politicians always say they're not doing something until mm. the moment they do it, so that's... 100%. <laughs> take it with a, a, a some grain of salt. Um, and then um, we saw Nathan Dom switch... Oh, no, he filed, right, to run for Inhofe's seat. Um, Jackson Lehmeyer, who is the far-right candidate. I think, I think Dom's running for Dom's running for CD2, isn't he? I thought he was running for Inhofe's seat. Oh, man. This, we, this, we have a spreadsheet, we, uh, and, this is, and this is why. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was, because it's hard to keep track of who, who is I'm who pretty is certain he's for running what. for Senate. Yep, you're right. Yep, so um, Dom's running for Senate. And then the other guy, Jackson Lehmeyer, who is the far-right candidate running against Lankford. Lankford for the other Senate seat. Has he said if he's going to stay in that race or is he going to switch to the open race? I think he's staying in, the, in, the, in that seat. Otherwise, they want to get two far-right candidates. They want right. to get a far-right candidate That's in right. race. That's right. Yeah. That way he, he and Dom can campaign together. Can you, and then, and then you haven't even said this yet, uh, Current state GOP chairman and virulent racist uh, John Bennett um, is running for CD two. CD two. Yeah. Um, man, if we had uh, Congressman John Bennett and Senators Nathan Dom and Jackson Lee Meyer, that would be quite the trifecta. That would be a dramatic shift to the right for yes. our congressional delegation for the Oklahoma. Right. Congressional right. delegation. We're already pretty far to the right, and this would just push it even further. Um, one question, because John Bennett, so John Bennett, uh, previously member of the state house, um, he left in eighteen. I think so. Maybe um, he lost. Didn't he get? Did he get beat? I can't remember if he. I can't remember if he got primaried and lost, or if he just decided not to run anymore because that's what was going to happen. He was one of the founders of the Platform Caucus, right? Yeah, I think or, so. Or at least are members of the Platform Caucus, and he definitely was a target. Of that kind of so-called dark money effort to to get rid of some of the members of the platform caucus a few years ago, um, and then ran last year and won, 
uh, to become the state party chair. Right. Um, um, one question that I saw posed this week, and I don't know the answer, um, is do we know if Mr. Bennett can run for Congress and remain state party chair at the same time? I don't know. Um, that is a question on my list of things to Google <laughs> in the evening. Um, and Scott, you are correct. He did not run for re-election in 2018. Yeah. Um, he just opted not to run. Um, and that was a pretty contentious year. Like he had faced, he had said some pretty outlandish, terrible things about right. Muslims and other groups. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, and as, as state party chair, like he has endorsed Lehmeyer over mm-hmm. Lankford, mm-hmm. which is on like unheard of. Right. I mean, if you've got a candidate for your party already in office, you almost, you always support them, right? Yeah. Um, or you don't say anything. Right. But it is extremely rare for them to, to run someone against it and endorse them. So I think that's doing two things. One, in the eyes of many Republicans, it is moving the state party out to the fringe, right? Mm-hmm. And like less relevant. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens there. Um, a few other names um, that are being kicked around that I don't think we addressed last week. One is um, State Senator Marty Quinn. Um, it sounds like he is going to run, I think, for CD2. Um, Gendar Drummond seems to be indicating that he's committed to the AG's race. He yeah. is, he's not interested in running for Senate. Governor Stitt has said he's not interested in running for Senate. Yeah. I don't think we have heard anything about uh, Lieutenant Governor Pinnell one way or the other. No. We talked a little bit about uh, former Lieutenant Governor Todd Lamb last week. Because um, he had that tweet. He had but... that tweet, but I don't think we've heard anything about him either. Um, other prominent names, T.W. Shannon, uh, Senator Treat. Again, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of stuff swirling about them, but I don't think they've announced anything, right? No, J.C. Watts is a new name this week, though. He's, I think, the only black person ever been elected to statewide office in Oklahoma. Well, he um, wasn't statewide. He was a congressman, but not a, he wasn't elected on a state. He, I don't think he was ever elected as a, a statewide official. He was elected to, to Congress. Uh, he so was in Congress for four terms. A federal official, but I don't think he ever won a statewide Oh, he race. was corporation commissioner. That's the oh, he was? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. That was the statewide office. Um, so that'll be interesting. I think he's got some pretty high-profile people that he's been working with as well. I mean, um, he's got he's got a record of success. Um, there's a lot of a lot of OU fans. A lot of OU fans mm-hmm. would be would uh, would happily, I think, vote for J.C. Watts. Uh, for those who don't know, J.C. Watts was a, a very successful quarterback at OU back in the day. Uh, prior to uh, his foray into politics, played for uh, Coach Barry Switzer. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, we had thought of him. I thought he was kind of done with uh, elected life, but um, um, I think I think the congressman would be a formidable candidate. Yeah. So I mean, he's sixty four. He left politics twenty years ago in two thousand two, um, and has pretty much been out of the public eye since then. So that would be super interesting. Um, other names on the other side of the aisle, right? Uh, Emily Virgin has um, indicated, I think, to Carmen Foreman again, like. Um, or she, she, it was during a committee meeting that, that Carmen was in that she said um, somebody else, I think Representative Crosswhite Hater, kind of like said, like, I guess this is the week people are making announcements if you've got any. And, and uh, Leader Virgin kind of was like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, I'm just, the only thing I'm running for is to get out of this building. And so, <laughs> um, which again, we haven't heard any 
you know, notable Republican or Democrats, even not notable ones. We really haven't heard any names. Is, I there, see, any, is there a Democrat in the race other than the? No, there's there's no. not not for the vacancy. The only the only Democrat who's running is Madison Horn, who is uh, running for Lankford seat. Yeah, and she like had eyeballs, I think, about switching races. But, again, we talked about last week, she'd have a pretty uphill battle. Um, well, Kendra Horn's uh, camp put out a statement that was basically like, hey, I, we're still looking we're at it. Thinking but, about it. Yeah. Um, not, not no, but not yes. Right, and we want to make sure it's the right thing for Oklahoma, right? And um, I mean, call me crazy, but I think all the Dems, at least at least the Dems that might have some some money anyway, uh, I would. I haven't gotten called, but I would imagine there have been some polls in the field this week. Uh Trying to say like, for how, a lot of people, right? <laughs> yeah, for yeah. a lot of people. How uphill of an uphill battle is this? <laughs> right, right. And I suspect. I mean, the the filing deadline isn't until April, right? Mm-hmm. And so, at this point, uh, I think a lot of people are probably waiting to see who else gets in sure. to make a decision. So, sure. we'll see. And I think you know, most interesting for you know what we try to talk about on the podcast here is how does this affect everyday lives, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of people, well, probably it's got a lot of people don't follow the horse race of politics the way that you and I do. Sure. Um, nerding out over cross tabs on polls that are released. But um, this, I, I think this, this opportunity could have consequential uh, impact on regular everyday Oklahomans, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of us, you know, Washington feels far away, um, but because of the trickle-down effect here, right? Like, Inhofe retires. If, you know, some congressmen run, that opens up those seats for, like, state house, state senators to run for those seats, which opens up their seats, which means that, hey, like, well, regular people who might be interested in running for office but don't want to run against an incumbent suddenly might, right? Uh, you know, we, we use Senator Treat as an example. Should he file for one of these federal offices? Um that would mean that his seat could potentially be open mm-hmm. again. For anyone in the state house who are running for re-election, they would not be running. So suddenly you've got open seats, and that, and with a very short time frame. And that means that if you are a listener and you're interested in running for office, and you know that you probably can't beat an incumbent, well, you know, you find out. Call them and ask if they're going to run. Right, and there may be an opportunity there. It also just kind of shakes up. Um, not just those individual seats, but the composition of the state legislature, perhaps other statewide offices, and our federal delegation. Uh, and when, you know, at the federal level, things, particularly in the Senate, you know, are, are a 50-50 split. Um, while we don't expect this seat to swing the other way, there's, the, a, there's a higher chance than there was two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Totally agree. It's... Uh... Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting it's going to be an interesting few weeks yeah. uh, to see who jumps in where. Yeah. Um, some of the other things that passed this week um, at the at the legislature, we saw um, again. I think a lot of kind of signaling bills. Um, a bunch of the medical marijuana stuff went through, and in fact. Uh, you know, related to medical marijuana, we haven't we haven't talked about that very much. We should have Brian Jones or Ryan Kiesel mm-hmm. or someone on the show to talk about it because there's some really significant things that are happening. For one, this week, um, the uh, a judge 
upheld the injunction or denied the injunction. I think upheld the injunction to a, that basically cleared the way for the seed to sale tracking system to go into effect. Yeah, which is an effort to try and crack down on black market black market cannabis. Which I mean, we know is a problem. There was what, like, like, like last week or two weeks ago, like a five hundred million dollar uh, bust. cannabis yeah. bust that was all uh, illicit, yeah. if you will. Um, so the having a very uh, having a very um, I don't want to say loosely regulated, but having a very open market for medical cannabis has not has not diminished the significant uh, black market for for cannabis. So. You know, I think the, the legislature is really trying to do a lot this year to crack down on that. It really is a problem in rural Oklahoma. I mean, it's a big problem in rural Oklahoma. So, well, and it's a problem everywhere, right? I mean, when you, when you, I think as I've learned more about how our medical marijuana market works, right? Like right now, grow operations, grow the weed, then they, then they sell it to a retailer, right? Mm-hmm. To a dispensary. Who then sells it to the public? Mm-hmm. Some of them are processed in between, and you know whatever. Uh, but there's not. If you go to a dispensary and you say, "I want, I don't know, a dime bag," I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the, <laughs> there's another term. This is days uh, myself. But if you go and you, you say, "I want a, a pre-roll," or you want something, they sell you whatever they've got, but you don't know necessarily where it's from. Now it might say, but you can't confirm that. And uh, that grow operation may also have like sold half their stock to the dispensaries and then the other half they could have sold to their a buddy. Guy. Yeah, <laughs> a guy, that's right, who sells in the black market. This new metric is the company who will be implementing the seed to sale program. It basically stops that, right? So that it <laughs> grow growers have to account for all of their seeds, all their plants, all their stock and where it goes to the testing facility and then on to the dispensary. And so when, as a consumer, if you're someone who uh, uh, consumes this product, when you go buy it, you'll get to know specifically, you know, what farm it came from, where it was tested, all of that. You know, speaking of cannabis, there's the perennial effort to just pass a state question that, uh, a state question that would legalize cannabis and, and essentially make it uh, legalize recreational cannabis in Oklahoma. Uh, where are we with... Uh, the bills introduced this session to limit the ability of, of voters to to make their voices heard with state questions. Oh, right. Man, that's a good question. Well, first let me say, because I thought you were going to ask where are we with those state questions, and I think they're still working through the legal challenges. Yes, yes. Um, uh, there's three state questions that deal with open legalization. And we should say the seed-to-sale system would be necessary for that as well, right? Sure. Recreational marijuana doesn't just mean like smoking if you got it. Like yeah. it's not just you buy it from the guy in the corner. Right. It would, in some ways, like it's like pref- a regulated price. It's, it's like it's illegal for you and I to go sell cigarettes, right? Like you and I can't right. stand on this corner and sell cigarettes out of the carton, right? Right. Like that would, or or, or alcohol, right? right? Like we can't but stand on the corner. How crazy does that sound, shop, right? That right? we, like the idea that, I, and it's probably different for you know younger folks who are now growing up in a world where marijuana is legal, like my kids mm-hmm. see dispensaries and it's just normal to them. Yeah. Um, Do you but, call it the drugstore? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Do you call it a pharmacy? No. They, <laughs> um, it is funny. They haven't asked many questions, but sometimes I'll like laugh out loud at some of the names of the, you know, the dangtuary and, <laughs> and places like that. Uh, and uh, it's real 
they haven't really brought it up yet, but I'm surprised. Maybe they just, I don't know, kids are so inundated with advertisements that it just goes over their head. Um, but yeah, so to your question, where are we with the bills that would restrict the initiative petition process? Um, several of them passed out of committee this week. Um, one would change the not the number of signatures required, so there's a lot of focus on that. Um, it, would, it would change either how signatures are collected, mm -hmm. so you'd either have to do it as a percentage of, I think there were two bills, one would change it to be a percentage of the voters in each congressional district. Mm -hmm. So depending on what kind of ballot initiative you're doing, a referendum is 5%, um, a, a statutory change is 8%, the constitutional change is 15% mm -hmm. percent of the voter turnout in the most recent gubernatorial election. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they chose that, but that's how it works. Um, so it, instead of right now, it's just you get 5, 8, or 15% of all voters in, this, in the state. This would change it. You have to get that percentage from each congressional district. Another bill would change it to be um, that percentage of each county. Right, they want to create an electoral college in Oklahoma. They essentially want to create an electoral college for, it's not enough to win the majority. You have to win the majority of counties. They're like, they're well, literally- Well, this they're, is just for signature collection. What you're talking about is yet another bill where it would, there's a couple of things. One would, you have to win a certain number of counties, um, but also there's a bill that you have to get 60%. So if, you, uh -huh. if your measure passes with 58% of the uh -huh. popular vote, it doesn't right. get implemented. It is so it is so fascinating to me. Like and and I you know we have we have we have a lot of great local journalists. I don't know if any of them have asked this question. If they have, I assume that they either wouldn't get an answer. Or they might not even they might not even get an interview. Um, it's just interesting because Senator uh, is it is it Robertson who's doing who's running is is Robertson running the bill? Roberts. No, it's not. It's not Roberts. It's. Uh, uh, it, it's unimportant, but the, 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 the bill that requires you to win a majority of counties, mm, mm -hmm. the argument for this bill is that rural Oklahomans deserve more of a voice, right? Mm -hmm. That rural Oklahomans are having to have consequences of bills that are being passed by the urban centers. Well, no, really what's happening is that a majority of Oklahomans have voted for something and it just so happens that a majority of those people live in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Right. Like, he, he is making the argument that, that rural centers are shoving this down rural, you know, uh, urban centers are shoving this down rural, rural communities' throats. And it's like, no, we're just asking everybody. And the most common answer is that we want to do it this way. Right. And his argument is, no, rural voters should be able to veto that. Like, and I really want someone to ask him why he thinks that rural voters are like more important or more valuable or why rural communities should be able to veto what the majority of Oklahomans want. Well, and there, there exists a scenario in that, Scott, where a majority of rural voters could support it, but not a majority of rural counties, right? Because mm -hmm. there are some counties in Oklahoma have fewer than 5,000 people. Sure. So like if you got, let's say just less than half of that, right? And you didn't right. win the county, but you get that across the state, you could have a right. majority of, of rural voters. Um, so again, I, I'm not here to say that urban voters are more important than, I'm just saying 
we're all equal, everybody's vote should count the same, and a state question that gets a majority, 50% plus one, should be the law of the land. In like, fact. there shouldn't be this, no, you got to win this percentage of folks in population centers, but you got to win this percentage of folks that don't. Like, right. like where we shouldn't be giving more power to people based on where they choose to live. Right, right. And in fact, um, there's, cost, there's, you know, constitutional provisions that each vote shall count equally. So um, we'll see. Well, we'll see what happens there. Um, I don't anticipate that those will go all the way. I fear that one of them that would, there's one that would just raise the threshold for adoption to 60% for constitutional amendments. And on the face, I could see this making sense, right? We've talked before about how we don't think that um, um, people, that we should be amending the state constitution every couple of years, right? Right. The problem is that, I probably said that before I realized how detailed our state constitution is mm-hmm. and that in many cases when statutory things have passed at the ba- at the ballot like uh, just statutory changes mm-hmm. that they were then undone by the legislature yeah or attempted to a state question mm-hmm. 780 most recently sure. a very popular criminal justice reform measure the very next session um, filed several bills to repeal it right and that right. even though that's clearly not the will of the people um, it doesn't stop them. And so I think a lot of things go in the Constitution as a way to prevent politicians from overriding the will right. of the people. Well, and what's what's frustrating is because of because of just you know, because of how kind of uh, lopsided we are in Oklahoma in terms of, of where the parties are, what happens is a majority of voters pass something, right? And then, and then the legislature, several members of the legislature, say, well, no, we have to undo because the folks in my district don't support this. No, what you're saying is the primary voters in your district don't support this. Right. Right? Like, right. like that's, that's really what we're talking about. The people who vote in the primary in your district are the ones who don't support state question X, Y, Z. Right. Right. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's why, that's why things get enshrined in the Constitution is because that's, that's. There's like not no way to undo it, but it's much, much, much harder. If we could trust that our legislators would respect what majority of Oklahomans want them to do, you would have to put everything in the Constitution. It's right. not a good idea to govern by constitutional amendment, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right? Like that's not. It's not a good. It's not. That's not best practice, right? But <laughs> but when when something worse is the alternative, right? You know, another solution though. We don't talk about this very much, but what we could do. Um, it, what the legislature could do, right, is to um, pass or propose an amendment that that would protect ballot initiatives, statutory changes from the from the voters for like five years, right? Like basically saying, if a measure passes the ballot, uh, if an initiative petition passes the ballot, the legislature shall not amend or change it for five years, right? Sure, but do you think they're going to limit their own power? No, no, they're not going to do it, but I'm just saying... But should they? Yes. Even, do you think they would if it was two years? Uh, I mean, maybe, but but probably not. No, I mean, medical marijuana is a good example, right, where it passed, it was a statutory change passed by the people, um, and they've had to make several amendments because the language was fairly vague, right? Like there were some things that were not detailed, some provisions that they needed. Um, and 
I think uh, we um, the the flip side of that is that it um, they could still discuss changes right and plan for the future and in in some ways having that lead time to like mm-hmm. contemplate and debate okay well we need to make a change on this we need it wasn't quite mm-hmm. solid from the ballot we need to uh, and probably the public would agree and you know we need to see the sale program that wasn't part of the deal um so those kinds of things can be implemented with a little more foresight yeah In yeah fact, there's related to that there's a bill this year i think from uh, representative andy fugate i don't have the bill number in front of me but it's um I think it was him. It might have been from Senator John Michael Montgomery, too, that would basically change so that it, not to make our state legislature like Texas, which meets every other year, mm-hmm. um, and it's not even to do a budget thing every other year, but it's where certain measures um, could only be proposed in, in certain years. Yeah, in like an even-numbered even years. Yeah. But it, the way it's worded is like they can only be proposed in even-numbered years and then only voted on in odd number of years or vice so versa it forces you to have a year-long debate about it. yes interesting and i was like hey that's not a terrible idea mm-hmm. and you know people will argue that it slows down government <clears throat> but also i would argue that in many cases government needs to operate a little more slowly for the because this deliberative process needs mm-hmm. to happen sure otherwise we get like what we had last week where um uh, bills are proposed like bill language is proposed so shortly before the committee meeting that the committee members haven't even seen the bill language, right? Right. And they're asked to vote on bills with language they've only seen for 12 minutes or something. Right. Which happens, which happens all the time, right? Like that happens all the time in, in Oklahoma politics where, you know, the agenda gets posted five minutes before, before the meeting, which is like within Within the letter of the law or rules, I think, but certainly not within its spirit. Well, I mean, in the committee meeting this week, they had to suspend the rules to allow them to do it, right? So, like, it's technically not in the rules. They had to suspend the rules in order to hear the bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but speaking of transparency, do you want to talk about canoe? Yes. What you're, You take us through the deets and then I'll, uh, <laughs> You'll I'll, fill I'll in. comment. Scott will chime in with, and another thing. <laughs> the uh, So, as listeners probably know, um, last year, I guess, whatever it was, sometime recently, in the last couple of years, Governor Stitt um, inked a deal, uh, negotiated a deal with electronic or electric vehicle manufacturer Canoe, C-A-N-O-O. Is it weird to you that it's a car company named after a boat? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, a lot of things about them are weird to me. Yeah. They've actually not produced any vehicles yet, right? That's part of the deal. We've seen renderings. I don't think they even have a prototype, but uh, it's a, it was a big deal. Um, millions of dollars that were um, kind of promised, $15 million in cash basically was promised to them. And they had not released any of the details about it um, because the deal wasn't signed. And on some level, I will admit that makes sense, right? Like, because they they have a competitive advantage in this and they don't want to say what it is until the deal is done, right? We all don't want to counter chickens before they hatch. We don't want to sign our contracts before they're dry or whatever. Um, but the Frontier has since, I guess they've been signed now, and the Frontier has got access to those documents and, and wrote a really good story about it. 
Um, and it, I, Scott, I'll say, I was a little comforted by what I read. It was not as bad as what I expected. Yeah, you know, what the, the headline for this has been that it's a $300 million, right? Like it's a $300 million package of incentives, which have had a lot of people going, uh, what now? Right, because um, it not, sounded not, like we, we gave them $300 million and yeah. they hadn't done anything yet. Yeah. That's not the case. And, and, there's not, and there's not $300 million in, uh, in the quick action closing fund, right? Right. So, uh, so but it turns out that that's, that's not the case. So what's, what, what do we know now? Yeah, so we, what we know is they, um, they were going to get $10 million from the quick action closing fund, which is the largest out of that chunk. Uh, well, I guess the $15 million deal is the largest the state's ever awarded um, since the quick action closing fund was created in 2011. But $10 million of that um, would be to help build that plant, the manufacturing facility in prior Oklahoma, that they, Canoe said, will create like 1,500 jobs. Um, but that 10 million isn't just, uh, a, isn't just like earnest money in good faith. Um, it has stipulations that Canoe can, if Canoe spends $48 million and completes at least 10% of the construction of the factory, they would get $3 million, right? So they got to spend 48, then they get three. And then to get the other seven, they have to finish the plant and invest $450 million in the facility. And all of that by July of 2026. So there's even a time frame on it. It's not open-ended. And, and that somewhat makes sense, right? To say, you got to build the whole plant and you got to invest $450 million in doing so in the next you know, four years. If that's the case, we'll give you $10 million. Um, and if they haven't started building the factory by next January, um, then they'll have to repay some of the money, right? And if they don't complete it by July of 2026 or meet some other performance goals, they have to repay the money. So there's, there's like a clawback mechanism, which is also good, right? Um, they can get another $5 million from the Quick Action Closing Fund um, if they create, like they've said, they'll create 700 new jobs. It will be, you know, high-tech jobs. Um, but uh, they have like 10 years to do that. And so they've only expected to have 85 people like in the next two years. And, um, and that's, I guess that's all they have to have really to get that first 5 million. So there's some kind of incentive. There's stipulations. Salaries have to be between 85,000 and 125,000. If they don't hit those hiring goals by 2027, they have to pay back the money. Now, of course, the company hasn't yet turned a profit, so there's always some, uh, I think, anxiety that they might collect some money, do most of the work, and then file bankruptcy, and then there's no clawback to be had, right? Like, that's certainly possible. Um, you know, the CEO of Canoe, Tony Aquila, Akia? Aquila, um, was at the governor's State of the State address last month when he was there. Um, the, the company said, like last December, that they were planning to make between 3,000 and 6,000 vehicles this year, but they still don't have a prototype model. Um, and, and it's, you know, the middle of March now, so like things are not looking optimistic for that 3,000 figure goal. Yeah. Also... One of the other things that the um, Frontier reported is that part of the deal was that the state of Oklahoma 
promised to buy a thousand electric vehicles, um, which uh, Scott, you and I have talked about this. I would love to see Oklahoma update its fleet, right? With uh-huh. some more sustainable Absolutely. options. But there's a lot of questions in that, right? Um, fleet vehicles tend to have lots of miles put on them. Um, things break down. Who, you know, who are the, who's going to repair these? Are these like, do you have to go to the dealership? Like, First of all, they don't exist yet. We've never even seen a prototype of their vehicle. Mm-hmm. What what exactly are we buying here, right? We're promising to buy an idea of a vehicle. Uh, we haven't paid for them yet, so that's you know that's obviously good. But I think there's um, still some questions there. Um, there's some other incentives that may have offered the state has offered that are you know we've talked about just 15 million of that 300 million dollars. So obviously a lot we don't yet know, um, but it'll be. That's a big chunk of change for all of those vehicles, uh, and I would assume that we would see, you know, competing bids from Ford and Chrysler and Chevy and maybe even Tesla, right? Like trying to get in to be like, listen, if you're going to buy a thousand vehicles, like that's a lot of money, right? That's millions of dollars of money. Why not buy ours, right? Let's. So, we'll. I'm very curious to see what happens. I'm curious just to see the prototype. Like I. I'm a car guy. I would love to see something besides like the little, uh, (laughs) you know, like rendered models they have that aren't even really working prototypes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. This is, you know, the whole, it's a lot, it's a lot better than we thought. I'm glad that there are clawback mechanisms. Um, I'm still not convinced. I mean, to me, to me, this still feels like a, a much more of a roll of the dice. You know, I think shooting for, you know, shooting for Tesla was probably maybe reaching a little bit high. Um, I love Oklahoma. I, I've lived here my whole life. I'm happy to live here, and, and I love it here. I think that trying to convince a lot of people to relocate from San Francisco, the housing, co- you know, the housing costs notwithstanding, um, to, to Tulsa, Oklahoma is a, is a big ask, <laughs> um, as opposed to, you know, a city like Austin, um, which is, is, I think, you know, for a bunch of reasons, still kind of a, a rung up um, from from Oklahoma City and, and Tulsa. Um, so I think shooting for a Tesla might be a bit of a reach. I would love to see us using you know tools like the Quick Action Closing Fund to try and uh, woo companies that have more of a track record, mm-hmm. right? A company mm-hmm. that. You know, it'd be great to have an electric car company here, but maybe an electric car company that's actually built a car, right? We, we used to have a GM plant right here in Oklahoma City. Right. Remember when it closed and what a big loss that was? And it's interesting to me that, that, they're, that they're marketing and talking about Canoe as a car company, manufacturing company. When you really dig into Canoe, there's an argument to be made that they're much more of a software company right. and that their long-term business plan does not come from making and selling cars. It comes from software that they want to sell to other companies who make cars, and they want they want they want big car companies to put Canoe software in their cars. Right, and and that's a big difference, um, both in terms of what their business plan is, but also in in terms of what kind of infrastructure they require. You know, it, you know, physical infrastructure, human infrastructure. It's just, it's just a, it's just a different mo. Right. It just seems it seems odd to me. I don't know how far Pryor is from um, from the city, but it seems weird to me that they would build a manufacturing facility in Pryor and not closer to Oklahoma City or Tulsa. Well, it's because there's that big industrial park out there. Oh, right. right. That gave them, that's given them a big deal. Yeah. Right. There's a big industrial park out there that's looking for tenants. Right. And so, again, 
I, I, I love the idea. I, I think public I think public private partnerships are fantastic. Maps is a great example. So I'm not anti using government funds to like lure private businesses. Um, I'm glad it's not three hundred million dollars, but I still wish it was a different company. Yeah, yeah, I, and I hope you know. I think we both hope we're wrong, right? Like, yeah. it would be it would be really rad for this all to work out for mm -hmm. them to build some kind of cool ass electric vehicle right here in Oklahoma. Yeah, and you know, to it to be a wonderful partnership, that'd be great. But I think we've seen the rocky road that even like Tesla has had. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are several EV vehicles, mm -hmm. EV, several EV companies um, out there that are also kind of somewhat struggling to get a mm -hmm. foothold, particularly because the, you know, Detroit big three are also investing right. heavily. And right. I mean, heck, Porsche has an electric vehicle out, right? Right. Volkswagen, everybody. I just, I, I hope this doesn't turn out to be something that, that Governor Stitt runs on for president. Um, as this big success story when the reality is that there's, you know, a hundred thousand square foot empty facility in the middle of prior. My pillow, my canoe. There you go. There you go. <laughs> it there can happen. Go. We're about out of time. Should we touch briefly on the, the crisis of world yeah. events? We've never, <clears throat> we've never really talked about it. I'm sure everyone is aware uh, that there, <laughs> if not, we should, if, if, if not, hold on to your butts. Cause this is going to be a rude awakening. Um, we're now in the, uh, the second week, um, of, of a Russian invasion into, into Ukraine, uh, in Europe. Um, it's really an, an awful, awful situation. Um, uh, you know, lots of, um, lots of casualties already on both sides, several thousand Russian casualties, you know, lots of Ukrainian casualties, um, you know, a lot of uncertainty about what happens next. You know, President Vladimir Putin of Russia is... Uh, has made several uh, veiled and in some cases not so veiled threats of of using uh, uh, nuclear weapons in some in some capacity. Um, there's a million refugees that have left Ukraine already. The cities of uh, Kiev and uh, Kharkiv have been have been um, really devastated. Um, why are we talking about this? One, it's just uh, it's it's a uh, it's one of the biggest international crises that the world has seen in, in several years. And so it's important that we're all kind of staying aware of it too. Um, it is going to impact us here at home. Um, the United States, along with several NATO allies um, and, and other allies from around the world has enacted some really pretty devastating sanctions directed at uh, both, you know, at, at Russian banks, Russian companies, the Russian economy more generally, and, and specifically Vladimir Putin and some of his, you know, kind of hench people. Um, um, and those have, I think, started to, those have started to prove effective more rapidly than a lot of folks thought that they, thought that they would. One of the consequences of that is is going to be increased uh, commodity prices, specifically oil and gas, um, which is not great since this is we're already seeing uh, record inflation. Uh, I filled my uh, I filled my car up this week and was like, oh, that's a number I haven't seen in a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's not the most it's ever cost, but. It's been a minute. This is this affects Oklahoma because uh, we're one of the leading producers of oil and natural gas in this in in the in that country, um, and in fact we have several uh, obviously major companies here: Devon Continental, um, now to a lesser extent Chesapeake, um, um, and there's been all this talk about um, oh well you know in order we what we what we should do is to, is completely cut off the spigot. The U.S. The US buys uh, about 10% of our oil and gas from, from Russia, um, and that's that remains the Russians' main source of, of income into their treasury. 
Um, and Sir Smith thought, why don't we just increase production here at home? We should we should cut 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 off the Russians um, and just start buying all of our natural and gas uh, home home homegrown American uh, oil and natural gas. Well, there's an interesting article today in the Oklahoman um, with uh, the CEO featuring interviews with the CEOs of, of Devon and Continental, um, talking about how they they are they're not real interested in doing that. Um, you know, they're saying we're seeing uh, we're seeing you know very strong prices right now. We're interested in in you know kind of passing some of those returns on to our shareholders in the form of dividends, maybe more stock buybacks. Um, and we you know kind of their sense was we see the we see the sh- the the Ukraine situation is a short-term problem. We're in a long-term business, um, and they're not interested in massively ramping up production, uh, only to see prices uh, tumble in six months or or twelve months or even eighteen months. Um, so their plans right now are all to hold production at their uh, current targets of zero to five percent over the next several years, um, which is interesting. I think you know you and I were talking earlier. I think that's probably the smart that's probably the smart play, right? Um, um, if you're if you're the CEO of uh, if you're the CEO of Devon or Continental, um, it's not going to help anybody who wants to fill up their gas tank or pay their heating bill. Right. No. I mean, uh, I think right now the price of gas is over four dollars a gallon, right? To uh, nationally, uh, which is the highest it's been since two thousand eight. Uh, and you think about that's fourteen years ago, right? So there are, there are people who are there are kids who are learning how to drive or just started driving that are mm-hmm. 16, 17, who were just like little kids at the time that, right. that <laughs> this happened before. Right. Um, and, uh, and it, I think, you know, f- you know, for America, thankfully we're moving out of winter and into summer so that um, less will be spent on natural gas for heating our homes and everything. But uh, listen, oil is in everything, right? It's mm-hmm. in plastics, it's in uh, roofing materials, mm-hmm. it's in, everything uh and so packaging right mm-hmm. so uh every it has an impact on everything and should this last it's uh it's gonna be difficult it's a tough deal and i think even if i mean i, I you know you said our conversation earlier that obviously these firms can't just ramp up production overnight right um <clears throat> it requires significant investment for the long term and uh, as true as that is, I, maybe I hope that it has. This is a moment for policymakers mm-hmm. and for those of us that are just regular folks, right? To like really think about the relationship we have with the global community and and what it looks like, right? Mm-hmm. I think with oil, I mean, it's a somewhat finite commodity, right? So if if America was just to only use American oil, right? And not anybody else's. We use a lot of oil. Yeah. We could feasibly burn through our supplies much quicker than we need, and then we'd be entirely dependent on other countries. So there's like a give and take here that is a lot more nuanced. So anyway, uh, well, our, you know, sincere thoughts uh, are with the people of Ukraine. um, And for all of our troops that are over there i mean i was i was watching on the flight radar app the comings and goings of u.s military aircraft just across the border in poland and mm-hmm. um, i think we all hope certainly polling bears out that americans do not want american troops to be committed to this um but i don't think anybody really has a good idea of what putin is thinking uh, and yeah. so um i'm hoping it doesn't it doesn't come to that agreed agreed
Listeners, thanks for being here. This brings us to the end of our episode for this week. Scott, thank you for being here. Man, I'm glad uh, glad we could do it in person this week. I guess I should say thank you for letting me be here since we're at your house. Yeah, it's uh, it's not Upper Room Studios, but uh, it's nice to be in person. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we didn't say this earlier. Bailey was um, had another obligation this week and was unable to join us. Uh, and so I think she'll be back next week. And uh, listeners, stay tuned. Uh, we'll try to put something together here um, for our 200th episode. Even if it's just a live stream, um, ideally we could do something in person again. Uh, maybe it's some trivia. We'll have to really put our noodles together and think about that. All right, well, uh, hug your loved ones and uh, enjoy the nice weather when we have it. Although I think it's supposed to be... It's going to be cold all the time, right? <laughs> Never mind. Stay warm. <clears throat> Put on a Snuggie or a, a nice hoodie. <laughs> Snuggies. I remember those. <laughs> it's been a minute. All right, folks. Uh, decisions are made by those who show up. Don't forget to uh, show up when you can. Have a good week. <laughs>